All right, if you have a Bible, I'm, I'm going to bounce around a bit in Exodus. We're going to start on page 48 in the Coffeehouse Bible, which is Exodus chapter 1. We're in a series on the mission of God. The mission of God. Uh, this is part four. I'm, I want to quickly catch you up. What we're, we're saying is that the mission of God, or the story of God, reveals the mission of God. In other words, if you really want to understand what the heart of God is for his mission in the world, you have to see what he's doing. You can't just pick one moment at the end of the story and say, here's mission. What we're trying to do is cover the full story pretty quickly to reveal the, the mission. And it starts with the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis 1, God commissions, he commissions humanity to fill the earth with his blessing. And the language that it uses is image of God. You are made in the image of God to bless the world. He says, be fruitful, multiply. It's, it's bring life to God's world. Fill it up like God would do it. That's the job. Unfortunately, as we see in part two of the story, what we call curse, the fallout of sin, instead, instead of filling the earth with blessing, the fallout of sin fills the earth with the curse of sin. Death is introduced in broken families and this broken identity. Do you remember all of these things? Instead of worshiping God and his spirit, they're following the serpent and they're looking more like him than they are the, the true image of God. And so it, it's just this complicating effect of sin and it infiltrates everything from, from the heart of a person all the way to the empire of Babylon, from, from an individual to the great systems. Everything gets pretty messed up by sin. But in part three, we see that God's solution to this problem of sin and the curse is to introduce one family. He, he calls one family, the family, the broken family of Abraham, to carry his blessing to all the earth. Remember, go. And he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. One family, broken as they are, is commissioned to bless. We're going to continue the story of this family today with the ancestors of Abraham called Israel. Israel are the ancestors of this man, Abraham, and they are the people who've been called to bless the world. But how are they doing with it? All right, we'll dive into that. So today, we'll look at Mission of God, part four, the covenant. And to kind of set attention here, I think sometimes when we think of mission, one of the controversial pieces is, is, is what God is doing in the world, is it spiritual or is it political? Is it spiritual or is it political? And this seems to, it's an old debate. People have been arguing about this for a long, long time. But it seems to be that this is just on the forefront of a lot of Christians' minds right now. In what way does God want to bring his justice in the world? Is it spiritual or is it political? And maybe it's just my Twitter feed. But it's, it's filled out with people kind of talking past each other on this topic. I've been around churches and I've been around Christians who seem to be doing the same thing, where they almost talk past each other as if it's one or the other. By spiritual, some people think that the mission of God is merely about finding forgiveness of sin so we can go to heaven one day. Finding forgiveness of sin so we can go to heaven one day. That's God's mission. And so the church should be about sharing, evangelizing the gospel so that people can find forgiveness. And then on the other hand, there's other people who say, no, what God really wants to do in the world is to bring his kingdom. He, he wants a political reality. He, he wants to see justice in the world. And so there's maybe the pendulum is swinging back and forth. And in a room, even with 100 people, I, I know that there are some of us in the room who feel one more strongly than the other. Maybe we even outright disagree with each other. 
But I think the story of God reveals the mission of God. And what the story of God reveals in Exodus is a holistic gospel. That's what we're going to look at today, the, the covenant. Okay, to set the stage, uh, we're going to dive into Exodus 19. But before we get to Exodus 19, we have to look back. And then we're also going to look forward. But, but first, we need to kind of set the stage by looking back at how do we get to the place we're at, at the foot of Mount Sinai. All right, set the stage, Exodus chapter 1. This is 48 in the Coffeehouse Bible. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, But the people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Do you see all of this language from chapter 1 in the mission of God, the creation? They're called to be fruitful, multiply, and look what they're doing. But this family is under the reign of a, of a king of an empire just like Babel. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us. Have you heard those words before from Genesis 11? These are, if you, this is your first time, you're like, what are you talking about? But these are all uh, hyperlinks in the story that go backward about earlier sections that we've already preached on. We've got, Reed's putting up great stuff on YouTube. It's on our podcast feed. You know, you can tune in and catch up with some of this. So I'm going to keep moving pretty quickly here. So the, the Pharaoh says, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us, maybe they'll escape. And so they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service, brick and mortar and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It doesn't stop there. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Now, I love naming these women. I, I really do. Because I love that the king of Egypt doesn't get a, the dignity of his name being remembered. Now, we can kind of go back and reconstruct who this guy is. It's probably Ramses II. But he doesn't get his name here, but Shifra and Pua do. For all, for all the legacy of, of Bible readers to honor and venerate their, their, their purpose here. He says to them, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and, and see them on the birth stool. Ladies, isn't it great? We've come a long way since birth stool. And if it's a son, he says, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. Now, Exodus 1 is going to keep going with the situation here. But just to use our language of our values, what we see, it's not a spirit-led movement here, right? It's not a renewed identity. Here we see the children of, of God, the, the family of Israel, the people of Abraham, they're not children, they're slaves. Instead of a beloved family, we see a, a very broken family. There's an invasion into the family system, and they're murdering children. We don't see holistic ministry. They don't even have their land. They're, they're not experiencing justice and, and righteousness. Instead, they're experiencing oppression and slavery. It's, so these people are the Genesis 1 people who are being fruitful and multiplying, but they're also the Genesis 3 people who are experiencing the curse of sin. That they are very much in this human story and the story of the mission of God. They need the mission in more ways than one. This sets the stage in terms of the tension. And it says, the people of Israel groaned 
They cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Have you ever heard of, like, and he knew his wife? In Scripture, the way he knew someone is to say he understood in an intimate way. It was as if he was right there with them. It's a true empathy, not just an understanding. God hears their cry. And do you remember what the Lord does? He he takes the boy out of the waters, Moses, and he raises him up to be a leader over time. And then he says to Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to say, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go that he may worship me. Now, I set the stage. Is this spiritual or is this political? First, is this political? Obviously. (laughs) The, The whole framing is around a king and a new king. It's about political leaders, and it's about justice systems, and it's about a nation. It's all, it's all seems to be political. But on the other hand, is it spiritual? It's like, yeah, very much so. What's interesting, I was, I was reading a, a couple of scholars on this. Michael Goheen, Christopher Wright, um, they write books on, on the mission of God. And they, here's what they say. Israel's bondage had a spiritual dimension. It was not merely political, economic, and social. So it's, it's not just a justice, but there is justice. Goheen, he says... Both the spiritualizing and the politicizing interpretations miss the profoundly religious nature of the conflict. You see what they're saying? Um, let, me, let me put it like this. In Exodus 4, when he says, I want you to let Israel go, my firstborn son, so that they can worship me, so that they can serve me. Did you know he uses the same words? In, in Hebrew, the word for serve is the word for worship. The thing they're doing for Pharaoh is the thing he wants them to do for him. So the problem is that they're worshiping the wrong spirits. They're they're imaging the wrong gods. And so they're being rescued and, and brought out of Egypt, not in order to be free, but in order to be in covenant. Does that make sense? They're not in order to just be free to now go do whatever you want. They're being invited into a covenant with God to serve and worship Him. Um, One more quote on on Chris Wright. He says, the problem was not just that the Hebrews were slaves, but they were slaves to the wrong master. They needed to be transferred into the service of the living God. The Exodus was not a movement from slavery to freedom, but from slavery to covenant. Redemption was for relationship with the Redeemer to serve His interests and purposes in the world. Why? He says, the The exodus affected real change in people's real historical situation. There was justice. He lifted up oppressed people. He lifted up poor people. He lifted up broken people. And at the same time, he called them into a new relationship with the living God. The picture of mission that we're going to see in the book of Exodus is a holistic gospel. It doesn't allow us to choose between political and spiritual. We see both in the mission of God in the book of Exodus. And if the story of God reveals the mission of God, I think this informs, still today, how we should think about our mission. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this in the coming weeks. We're about halfway through the series. Keep coming back. We're going to put some flesh on on these bones that we're starting to see in the Old Testament. But here's the central claim today. 
God covenants with Israel to be a holy nation for all the earth. It's simple. That's, that's the one central thesis today, that God covenants with Israel to be a holy nation for all the earth. All right? So we're going to dive into Exodus 19. Let's flip over there. Exodus 19. Now, in, in the in-between sections, from when he introduced Exodus to now, this is where he's, he released his people. He, he destroyed the Egyptians with the plagues, and it says that he showed that he was God of gods and Lord of lords. And then he passes, it's the plagues, but it's also the passing through the waters. When they pass through the waters of the Red Sea, now they're on the other side, and they get to experience presence with God. They get to experience peace. They're no longer oppressed. Now they're victorious. The plagues, the Passover, passing through the waters. And then you remember he guides them and he feeds them and he gives them something to drink. That's the wilderness. And here they are in the wilderness at the foot of the great Mount Sinai. This is the place where God shows up. This is the place where God met Moses. And he's going to meet his people one more time. What we see in Exodus 19 is that God actually gives them that spirit-led movement, that renewed identity, the beloved family, and the holistic ministry that we keep talking about. Here's the first piece, spirit-led movement. It says that Moses went up to God. He went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. The way that God relates to his people here, it's very intimately, very powerfully. Now, his his presence is, do you remember our metaphor of like a radioactive or a nuclear reactor? It, it can generate power. It generates life. But at the same time, it can also generate destruction and devastation. That's how the presence of God functions. And here, God is wanting to live with his people. And Moses gets to go up into the presence of God. And God gives him instructions. He says, I want to make my home with you. I'm going to dwell with you. And so he gives them instructions for the tabernacle. This is where I'm going to live. He gives them instructions for how to live with this holy, powerful God. If you keep going in Exodus, at the very end of the book, it says that the glory of the Lord, it came down and it filled up the tabernacle. And all the, the people, they, they're afraid, but they're, they're cheering at the same time. In Exodus 19, our text today, he's going to go up and it's going to be darkness it's going to be thunder and lightning. It's going to be terrifying. And the people are going to say, don't talk to us anymore. Just talk to, just talk to Moses. But the Spirit of God is coming to live with his people in a profound way. Moses went up to God because God wants, he comes down to us. This is one of the, the beautiful things of, of this whole book. is that God comes down to where we are. He does not expect us to go up to where he is. He comes down and he dwells with him. Mo Moses went up to God because God was here wanting to be with him. So Moses goes up to God and he says, here's a few instructions. Number one, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did. You've seen what I, you see what tense this is in? It's already done. It's past tense. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. What I do? I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, you know what an eagle does. It swoops down, it, it picks something up, and it, it carries it off, and it's pretty effortless. Uh, do you remember the Lord of the Rings, where the eagles show up as these rescuers? This is where Tolkien gets this image. Is there, 
Is there something in uh, Harry Potter, Scott, about eagles? Are there eagles in Harry Potter? Hippogriffs, whatever that is. No idea. I'm sorry. I bore you on eagles' wings. Now, for Israel, they might find this a little ironic. They're like, we've been walking for two months. It would have been nice to be born on eagles' wings. So it's not literally that they were born on eagles' wings. It's more like you didn't do anything here to actually get out of Egypt. You remember, even when the invading army is behind them, you get the Red Sea in front of them, the Lord just tells Moses, be still and, and be silent and watch me do it. That, I'll, I'll bear you up. I'll take care of this. And then he says, and then I brought you to myself. We don't, we don't go to God. He comes to us. He brings us to himself. It's, it's beautiful. But this order is really important. Uh, the, the order here, it starts with grace, not law. Did you know, a lot of people seem to think that Israel had this works-based righteousness where if they kept the law, then they would be pleasing to God. That, that is not true. God remembered his promise he made to Abraham long before he ever introduced the law. God rescued them from bondage and slavery before he ever gave the law. Grace comes before obedience every time in Scripture. Grace comes before obedience. But it, it does lead to obedience. Check, check this out. So he says, I've already borne you up. I've already brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you shall be my possession in, among all the people. So grace comes before obedience, but grace consistently in Scripture leads to obedience. Does that make sense? But that order is really important to understand. It's I'm accepted, therefore I obey, not I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Grace comes before obedience. So you were born up on, on eagle's wings. He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he has made a way that doesn't depend on you. All you got to do is let that eagle pick you up and take you to himself. Just, just sit there, be still, and watch me do it. And then what he wants to do is then transform us into people who are actually able to keep his covenant. In, in the story of Israel, we consistently see that God has these expectations of covenant requirements. But here's the order. Grace leads to obedience. Obedience leads to the blessing. So here's the blessing. He says, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples. Now, most translations will call this my treasured possession. It, it means something especially important to me. Because, he says, all the earth is mine. So, it's this language of a king. So a king, basically, everything in the kingdom belongs to the king in the ancient world. But he has some things that are especially part of his treasury. He has these treasured items. Jesus, I think, is probably riffing on this passage in Luke 15. He talks about a shepherd who really treasures a sheep. Do you remember what he does for the sheep? He, he, he'll go after that sheep. He talks about a widow who loses a very special coin, her treasured possession. What does she do? She sweeps the whole house until she finds it, and then she throws a big party. He talks about a father who loses his treasured son, the son that he loves. And so over and over, this is what the Lord says his people are to him. He, he's rescued you in order to be this treasured possession, this special people. I, it's an identity that he's given them. It's an identity of grace. He's made them an incredibly special possession. But then he says, for all the earth is mine and it's for all the peoples. Um, one commentator says that, the people of Israel, they're called to be a display nation. 
The way that Yahweh interacts, that God interacts with these people is so that the nations can be looking on and see, oh, that looks amazing. That looks, I want to be part of that. So do you see, I want to make you special because all the earth is mine. In other words, I'm the king of, of heaven and earth, and I'm coming for it. Israel, you have a special job here in front of all the world to be my, my treasured possession. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests is really cool language. It almost doesn't fit together. To be a kingdom means you have kings in charge, but he doesn't say you're going to have kings in charge. Now they're going to. He says, but you all are my kings and queens. I'm, I'm giving you this royal status really in creation in front of all the people. But it's a priestly kingdom. You know what priests do. Um, priests go in between the people and the gods. And so here, Israel, the whole nation seems to be this go-between for the nations and the one true living God. He says, you are my ambassadors. You're my representatives. You're my, my kingdom of priests. Show people the real God and rescue them from the power of the idols that they're worshiping. You are my kingdom of priests. But then he calls them a holy nation. Holy nation, uh, holy is a word that just means um, uncommon. It's set apart for something. So if you're reading a newspaper, is this a really dated uh, illustration? If you're reading a newspaper and you see a coupon that you want, you have to cut it out in order to use it, right? And once you set it apart, once you pull it out, now that's all the word holy means. It just means something that's set apart from the other thing. But it's set apart for a use, for a purpose. And so here he says, you, you're set apart for a use. You are special. All right, so this text, 3 through 6, is one of the most important texts in, in all the Old Testament. If you, if you just read a few commentators on the book of Exodus, they'll say that this is the lens for seeing the rest of the story. Everything is here. It's a lens for seeing the commission of what it means to, to be God's people, to what it means to be on mission. It's all packed in here. They say it's the most paradigmatic set of verses in all of the Old Testament for what Israel is supposed to be. So what does it say? If this is important for summarizing the mission of God's people, what does it say? There's four pieces, I think. But they all reinforce this idea that God covenants with his people Israel to be a holy nation for all the earth. I'm going to consistently use these values to help us understand this. The first piece of the covenant is that they are to be a spirit-led movement. Spirit-led movement. We see this in, in the way that Moses went up to God. And then he says, I'm going to come down to you. I'm going to live in your tabernacle. I'm going to live in your temple. I'm going to dwell with you. And if I dwell with you, then I'm expecting your whole orientation to be about worshiping me. You remember, he's not setting them free for freedom. He's setting them free for covenant. I want you to serve me. I want to live with you and you're Really, the whole way that they become a holy nation is because they're living with the holy God. You're, the presence of God is this key mark of his covenant, the second mark. We call it renewed identity, but here it's the mark of holiness. You're supposed to be a holy nation. You're supposed to be my, my firstborn son. There's an identity that he gives to these people, and the identity is of being distinct from the world around you, not totally separated because the whole idea is that you're doing this in front of the world so that they'll be drawn in. 
uh, the prophets will say, Israel, you're supposed to be a light to the nations, a light to the nations. Whenever they build the temple, Solomon has this sermon where he introduces it. And he says, I, the Lord wants this to be a house of prayer for all nations. I, I, your holiness is for the sake of attraction. What does their holiness look like? It looks like, you know, ethics, laws. It looks like changing your, the way that you practice your sexual life. It looks like the way that you think about your belongings. He says, all the earth is mine and so is all your stuff. It, I, I'm entrusting you with these. It, it's how you look at money. It's how you look at your, your words. It's how you practice. One of the most important ways their holiness showed up is, is in their rhythms. It, because it wasn't just that you need to behave in a holy way. It says that time is now holy. And so they have these, this structure of the seven feasts and, and the Sabbath every week. Why? Because you're holy people. I, you have to remember me in, in everything that you're doing. I, I'm the Lord who gave you the harvest. I'm the Lord who gave you your family. I'm the Lord who is dwelling in your midst. Remember the stories. This is what holiness looks like. It looks like ethics. It looks like your calendars. It, it looks like these laws. The third piece is that the Lord's calling them to be a beloved family. And the mark of this in the covenant is love. In in the book of Leviticus, he, he commands them, love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the mark. They have this really exalted view of family. Honor your father and your mother. They, they're, they're building a family of families. They're a confederation of tribes all working together. It's, it's this whole nation that's supposed to be drawing people in. Fourth piece is holistic ministry. This is where we see the laws of the people of Israel and their purpose. It's to bring justice to the land. And so we see a care for the vulnerable, for the widow, for the orphan, for the poor. We also see, though, in the law, a care for the, the immigrant and the foreigner and the outsider. He says you have to treat them like you would want to be treated because you yourselves were once immigrants and foreigners. Um, I, I love that today we have people from a lot of different classes in a lot of different nations. This is all a symbol of, of this original covenant that he made with Israel. That we're supposed to be a community who is set apart and distinct from the world and loves one another so deeply that we, we can establish a culture of justice, a culture of justice in our midst. That's, I think, what the law is for. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, um, Moses says that when you keep this law, he says, then the nations will know the God of wisdom. It's when you, when you show them justice, they will know the God of justice. When you show them love, they will know the God of love. When you show them holiness, they will know the God of holiness. This is, this is the covenant. But how do they do with this? How does Israel do with... Look, here's what they said. Moses, he comes down, he says to the people, the words that you, you shall speak to the sons of Israel from... Moses came and called the elders of the people, and he set before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. This is the Ten Commandments. This is the law. And he, he says, this is it. And what do they say? All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're going to keep every law forever. We're, we're going to enjoy your presence and practice holiness and show love and do justice. And so he brought back the words of the Lord to the people. But do you remember when Moses does come back with the law, what he finds? 
<laughs> he finds a golden calf, and he finds people eating and drinking and being merry, which means it was basically a drunken sex orgy happening in an act of worship to a false god. It's like, that went off the rails very quickly, Israel. And it doesn't stop. It never stops. They just, they continue to break the law and break the covenant, and they fail their part. And so, and so if these are the pieces, by the end of the book, by the end of the, the book of the Hebrew Bible, the presence of God has left. The Spirit of God, Ezekiel shows, he got up on his chariot and he just went back. He's no longer found in the temple. The holiness, he's saying, why are you profaning my, my temple and the altar? You're not practicing any of my laws. You look just like the world around you. Love, look, family, a confederation of tribes, a, a unified people, no. It's civil war, it's sibling rivalry, just in the family of David. His sons turn on each other, it's, it's off the rails. A community of justice, no, the prophets come in and they say justice is gonna roll down because you have oppressed the widow and the orphan, you have overlooked justice in your midst. And so the very covenant they were called to keep, they've broken in every way. And so this sets the stage for the new covenant. Now, we'll talk more about this in the next two weeks. But what, uh, we have this, this amazing indicator um, from Jesus where he, he shows that he's the one that's actually going to fulfill all of these promises. He's going to fulfill this mission in himself. And it's actually at the table. We just took the bread and the cup. But the reason we did that is because the last night of Jesus' life before he was crucified and, and raised, Last night, he, he took bread and he took a cup and he said, this is how I want you to remember me. And he, he took the cup and he said, this cup, which is poured out for you, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so I want you to drink it. He's introducing a, a new covenant. He is the one who will actually fulfill all of the pieces to this problem. He introduces the new covenant. I want to share with you a fairly extended quote from Chris Wright in his book, because what I think this shows is that the centrality of the cross for how we understand mission, how important the cross is. He says, all Christian mission flows from the cross, from the blood, from the cross as its source, its power, and that which defines its scope. Only in the cross is there forgiveness and justification and cleansing for guilty sinners. Only in the cross stands the defeat of evil powers. Only in the cross is there release from the fear of death in its ultimate destruction altogether, only in the cross are even the most intractable enemies of, of God reconciled. Only in the cross will we finally witness the healing of all creation. The cross becomes the center point of both spiritual and political. The cross becomes the redemptive moment where God rescues the world. It's through the cross, the cross of Christ, where the good news for every area of life on earth that's been touched by sin Every area of life, he says bluntly, we need a holistic gospel because the world is a holistic mess. And by God's incredible grace, we have a gospel big enough to redeem all that sin has touched. And every dimension of that good news is good news, utterly and only because of the blood of Christ on the cross. The, what he's saying is that the new covenant in Christ and his death is, is both the power and it's it's the meeting place where that mission happens. I'm, I'm going to try to make this practical. I'm, I'm talking theoretical. 
But for us as people who are trying to live out the new covenant, what does this mean for us? What it means is that the cross of Christ has to be infused into every, each of those areas. The spirit-led movement, the renewed identity, the beloved family, and the holistic ministry. If Jesus is missing from any of those pieces, then you're missing the redeeming power of God. Now, if you try to do justice without Jesus, if you try to do family without the cross, if you try to find identity without God, if you look toward the spirit and you're just dwelling in on yourself, if, if the cross of Christ is missing, you're missing everything. So the holy nation, it's not that it, it does away with all of those. It empowers all of those. It moves us into all of those areas. This is Peter. Peter picks up the same language from Exodus 19. Peter's kind of Jesus' right-hand man. He's, he's an apostle, and he writes this letter to the, the Christians in Rome, and he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? It, then he says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He says, you were strangers and exiles. You were strangers. He says, but now... You're the children of God. So you're new covenant people. You're this holy nation. All right, what does this look like more practically? I think this looks like for us, it's integrating Jesus and the cross of Christ into all of those areas. What does it look like to integrate the cross of Christ into a spirit-led movement? Um, let, me, let me tell a story and then I'll, I'll get into this. This is probably a story I've already shared or, or will share again. But uh, one of the most important writers um, in my understanding of mission is a guy named Leslie Newbigin. He's a, a British dude years ago, um, just kind of legendary missionary. He's a British dude who went to India. And India was very cross-cultural, right? You have to learn a new language. You have to learn new customs. You have to figure out how to adapt the gospel into a, a pagan culture where they have different gods. And so his work as a missionary, is translating the gospel into a way that people can understand it and make a decision. Does that make sense? He's, he's there for decades, and then he leaves India, goes back to Britain. And Britain has changed completely from the time that he left. It's become, we would call it post-Christian. It's not that the churches are disappeared, right? It's not that nobody knows what a Christian is. It's that everybody thinks they're Christian because they were born in the Church of England, you know, everybody is a member, but nobody's going. <laughs> everybody's a Christian, but nobody's a disciple. And so there are people talking about justice, but Jesus is never a part of it. There's people talking about finding freedom and fulfillment and healing, but it's, it's not around the gospel. And so what he says, he said, I had to take what I learned in India, and I had to bring it into my homeland. I had to start figuring out how to translate the gospel into this culture in ways that they could understand it, in ways that they could make a, a good decision. One of the most important ways that Newbigin shows us, he says you have to know the stories of your culture in order to see how the gospel is the true response to them. Another way of saying it, if this is spirit-led movement, you have to know the idols of your culture. So we have to become idolatry discerners. What's your language, of, is that it? Harding Academy people, this idolatry, you have to be able to see the cultural stories and the lies embedded in them and then show the truth of the gospel in the face of them. He says, I had to do it in India, but then I had to figure out how to do it in Britain. 
That's our task as a, as a community in Memphis to figure out the stories of Memphis and to figure out the stories of the United States in a post-Christian secular age. And I know, I, I look around, there's very few people who are over 50. You've got a few, I'm so grateful you're here. But most of us are young people living in the United States and we are deeply embedded in the cultural narratives. We don't even know it. The, the key task of being spirit-led is to find out the idols of our culture. And one of the, the primary ways this shows up is in terms of identity. Remember our second value, renewed identity. One of the, the core cultural stories is that you find your identity by looking inside yourself, by following your heart, by you do you. And it's that the self is the highest authority you're not worried about Pharaoh, maybe a little you are, but mostly you're worried about the self. And is anybody going to let you do something that you don't want to do or make you do something that's not authentic? All, all of this is a cultural story that leads into a very distorted picture of identity. And the, it promises freedom, but it doesn't deliver. It actually just increases anxiety. It puts more pressure on you to try to experience and create freedom for yourself. But th the good news here... Um, I was thinking of this tension. We're called to be a holy nation. But actually, one of the stories that we want is we just want to be accepted. We don't want to be on the outside looking in. We, we want to belong. We want to belong as our true self. We want to be known and to be loved. And, and so we're afraid. I think many people are hesitant when it comes to really diving into church or diving into Christian discipleship. We're hesitant because many of us think, I'm going to be weird. And then those of you who don't feel that, you're so weird that it's making everybody else be like, I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. That's me. The people who laugh are like, yeah, that's right. They say, I don't really want to be weird. I want to be accepted. And, but here's the thing. The, the Christian vision of life, I think you're underselling how beautiful and how good it actually is how compelling and how inclusive, how it can lead to belonging. There's nothing better for people to experience than to get wrapped up in the orbit of a Christian community who is holy, who loves God, and who's practicing justice. If, if somebody gets pulled into that gravity, that centripetal force of drawing them in, they will be blessed. But on the other hand, you're absolutely right. In our desire for acceptance, being called a holy nation and having holiness as our identity is really challenging. Jesus himself says, a servant is not above his master. He says, if they rejected me, many are going to reject you too. There is a cost to holiness. But the beautiful thing about this identity, he gives us holiness. It's that if you want to be accepted by people, if you go to a therapist, most, most good therapists, I'm, I'm Therapist, correct me if I'm wrong later. There's so many in the room. I'm, I shouldn't have even said that. Just take that last part out. But they're probably going to say, you have to stop worrying so much about what other people think. You have to stop worrying so much about if you're accepted by other people. But here's the really good news, that this identity, the gospel identity, the identity that's found on the cross of Christ, it means that you're accepted at the highest level of the cosmos from the creator of all things, the God of gods and the Lord of lords who can wipe out Pharaoh and his army and who can rescue people. He is the God who goes after his son, who goes after the, the coin, who goes after the sheep. That's, that's the level of acceptance that you get to enjoy in, in this identity. It's spectacular, the identity that he gives. What about beloved family? 
gospel of family is this unique community of love. And I know a lot of people are hesitant about church because you don't always experience the church as a place of love. Uh, may it never be at this, this church, but of course it will be. Um, this, I mean, this is the mission. This is the story that we've been exploring, is that the people of God have, they, they carry the curse and the blessing at the same time. And, and so the people called to be a holy nation. I, I guess my plea is that if you're reluctant to come back to church and to practice discipleship because of love, find a community where you can be loved. Don't reject community. You, you need love. And it doesn't mean you'll find perfect love in this life. But there are good ways to experience life in the kingdom together. Um, I love that my Oikos group is multi-generational and it's multi-ethnic and that my kids get to be seen and known. They get to grow up in an environment where, where Daryl can play games with them, where Michael's doing Babalu guac, um, um, where I, Hayden, last week, you were just, you were playing with my kids and it was like the highlight of that day. You can taste it. There are places of belonging if you'll invest in the community. You know, one of the ways that the Lord has his people do this is in terms of their calendar. He says every, every week, there's this rhythm of Sabbath where I want you to worship and I just want you to take it easy and enjoy just being my child. No work. You get the day off from trying to prove your existence. <laughs> Let me tell you, you're not a slave in Egypt anymore. You're my child. And that same offer is still here. I think sometimes going to church can feel a lot like that burden, but that's, that's not at all what he intends. He intends for it to be a Sabbath rest, a place of fulfillment and joy, a place of taking it easy and letting your shoulders down, a place of experiencing, not proving your existence, but enjoying your acceptance. But it's not just once a week. It's actually a daily rhythm that he's expecting these people to practice. There's a daily holiness that has to show up in the calendar. And it's not in order to prove your acceptance. Remember, grace comes before obedience. It's to practice the love of God. Last piece, in terms of being this holy nation that we see here is, is holistic ministry. It's this community of justice. And I've got to say, I'm still trying to discern what this looks like um, biblically but more so what it looks like for a church. How does the church practice justice together? How does a nation practice justice? How does the church within a nation, in, within a city? There's so many issues, and they feel so complicated. But here is, is what I'm convinced of, that if we attempt to practice justice without the cross of Christ, something essential to the power of transformation will be missing. And so I think we have to integrate all of these pieces together. It's, it's like a four-legged stool, like your chair. And imagine if somebody took out just one of the legs of spirit-led and identity and family and, and this justice ministry. And if you just took out one leg, you might be able to stay there for a while, but you'd get very imbalanced. We actually need all four pieces to give us strength 
and stability. I mean, that's what makes it so hard to figure out how to do. Um, I'll say that we are praying and, and planning for ways to practice holistic ministry in our city, but we want to do it in responsible ways that incorporate all of the pieces, which means that it's going to have to be relational if it depends on the family. It's going to have to be deeply personal and, and verbal and communication if it's going to have to touch identity. It's going to have to discern the brokenness and the idolatry if it's going to touch on spirit-led. It, so how do we practice those in ongoing ways? How do we get relational partnerships in the city where we can get to know people and invite people into the orbit of this love, of this holiness, of this justice, and this presence? Does that make sense what we're looking for? And I don't have a silver bullet for you today. Maybe next week. Lord, give, it, give, give, us, the, give us the answer. Um, but I, I just, I think there are ways to continue to, to practice this in our, our individual lives, in our group lives, and in our corporate lives. I think it's even happening this morning, more than, more than we even know. But I, I'll just say, actually, can I just pause and pray that the Lord would, would give us more insight and more wisdom into that? Lord, would you give us wisdom? Would you direct our paths and shine a light into the organizations and pathways that you would have us to walk in in the city? Is there, is there a way in, as a, as a church, as a group, Lord, would you burden our hearts? Would you open our eyes? Would you help us to see? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us mercy so that we can carry out this call for your glory and kingdom? In Christ's name, amen. All right, let me, let me close with this. Um, actually, let me just read this. How about that? Stand up. I want to read, I want to read Hebrews 12 over you. And after I read this, if you've got kids, just go pick them up. Um, I, I think every week there's a few kids that are like, Mom, Dad, are y'all coming? Hebrews 12. Um, he's going to use Exodus 19 imagery in just really moving ways. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. You haven't come to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged no further word to be spoken to them because they couldn't bear what was commanded. If an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. No, you haven't come to that mountain, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen.